Romans 6, 1 to 4. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Sends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. pray together. God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this Lord's Day as we come together to celebrate the resurrection of Christ and the hope that we have in him. Lord, now as your word is preached, we pray that you would move through us to do what only you can, open up ears, eyes, hearts, and minds. May we receive your word as it truly is. Lord, we pray that you would remove distractions. May it be your word that accomplishes the purpose for which you sent it, and may you be glorified in us now and always. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we continue again in our summer mini-series as we've been looking at the mission of God in the world. And we began last week to look at how the church fits into God's plan to redeem his fallen creation. If you missed last week's sermon, I'd encourage you to find this on our YouTube channel or our church website. We pick up this morning looking further into how the church is to function and specifically this morning, we look at one of the ordinances that Christ gave to the church, that being baptism. So we will aim to answer a number of questions. Firstly, what is baptism? Uh, why do we do it? How do we do it? Uh, how does baptism relate to church membership? Who should receive baptism? And how do we know when someone is ready to be baptized? Now, as we typically seek to do here at Grace Covenant Church, we will try to address these questions by working through passages in the Bible. Now, you may have noticed, we, we strive to do this, that even when we are doing what we call a topical sermon, we will still seek to address these topics by working through a passage of Scripture. So if it seems like we're going off from our original topic of baptism, it is because we are seeking to do justice to the text that we're looking at. So, firstly, in Romans 6, Paul is not actually addressing the question of baptism. Uh, he is not directly teaching on baptism. He doesn't stop and say, okay, now we're going to talk about baptism. But rather, he refers to baptism in order to strengthen the point that he is making. And in the process, he makes a number of arguments which shed for us a great deal of light on what baptism is and how it is to function. So let's turn to Romans 6 and dig into the text together. Romans chapter 6, verse 1, Paul says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Now one thing we need to remember when reading scripture is that the chapter and verse divisions were not in the original text. Right, so as Paul was writing Romans, he didn't stop and say, okay, now chapter 6, here we go. Uh, and so while these chapter and verse divisions can be helpful, I'm glad they're here, uh, they can also be misleading. Uh, we can sometimes assume that a chapter or paragraph break marks the end of a thought when this is frequently not the case, and that's what we have here in Romans chapter 6. Paul begins, quote-unquote, this chapter by saying, What shall we say then? What shall we say about what? 
Well, Paul here is anticipating an objection uh, based on what he has just said in Romans chapter 5, that he preemptively answers that objection, something he does often in Romans. Now, in order to get what he's responding to in chapter 6, we need to back up and look a little bit at Romans 5, which concludes with a contrast between Adam and Christ, who is the second Adam. Christ has caused grace to reign in righteousness, leading to eternal life. Uh, Romans 6 verse 1 points out, or pardon me, Paul is anticipating a possible faulty conclusion that someone may arrive at from his last point, and he seeks to deal with it before someone would even have the chance to go there. So he starts off, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. Now based on what he has just argued about the grace of Christ abounding uh, through the work of Christ, the second Adam, Paul anticipates that some people might take this to mean, well, hey, if God's response to my sin is to give grace, well, then the more that I sin, then the more grace will abound. And God is glorified as his grace abounds. Glory to God, bring on the sin. <laughs> Paul shuts that down in the strongest possible terms. No way. By no means, meganoito, may it never be. Now this idea that we can simply sin and get away with it, uh, is to sin with impunity, is called, big word here for you, antinomianism. Antinomianism. The Greek word for law is nomos. And so if somebody is antinomian, antinomos, they are anti-law. Uh, this is lawlessness. These are people who would treat God's grace as if it were a license to sin. They would see repentance as an optional thing. People who want Jesus as Savior, but not as Lord. So to put this in very simple language for the kids, you could, you could understand it this way. So some people say that because God forgives us when we do bad things, and because God is glorified when he forgives us, we should just keep on doing bad things, and God will keep forgiving us and being more glorified. Right? Well, what does the Bible say to that idea? Look with me in verse 2, Romans chapter 6. By no means. Paul says, no way, not a chance. How can we who died to sin still live in it. Notice, to be a Christian is to have died to sin. We see there is a spiritual reality involved in becoming a Christian. We saw this as we worked through Galatians, Galatians 5.24. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Paul says something very similar down in Romans 6, verse 6, where he says, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So our old self, our former self, was crucified with Christ. 
Now, our former self refers to our sinful nature, who we were apart from the intervention and grace of Christ. So the old man, the sinful flesh, our old self, in our conversion to Christ, there is a change that takes place. We are transformed through the working of the Holy Spirit. We repent of our sin, confess it to God, and we are now to consider that old nature, who we used to be, that old man, as being dead, right? crucified with Christ. He died. Who we once were as we lived for ourselves is no longer who we are now. We were dead in sin, in slavery to sin. We were in bondage to the world, the flesh, and the devil. But in our conversion, that old man has been put to death. He has died. We received new hearts. We have been born again. We have been indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And we are now new creatures in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So for the Christian, the moral instruction is always this. Be who you truly are. To live in sin is utterly inconsistent with the new identity that we have through our union with Christ. Our old self has been crucified with Christ. So notice, definitional to being a Christian is dying to sin. Having the old nature crucified with Christ. And all true believers have had this reality take place. Now, I don't want to give the wrong idea. We need to mention here that this does not mean that true Christians become sinless at the moment of their conversion. Right? So I don't want to give the wrong idea. If you are a Christian and you find that you are still struggling with sin, that does not mean you are unsaved. The fact is, in this life, we will never be totally perfected, unfortunately. Uh, as our confession says, uh, sanctification, that is, growing in holiness, sanctification extends through the whole person, though it is never completed in this life. Some corruption remains in every part. From this arises a continual and irreconcilable war with the desires of the flesh against the desires of the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. In this war, the remaining corruption may greatly prevail for a time, yet through the continual supply of strength from the sanctifying spirit of Christ, the regenerate part overcomes." Close quote. The life of a Christian, again as we saw in Galatians, is a life of war. Our sinful nature is against the desires of the Spirit. Our sinful nature continues to war against the Spirit within us. And in this war, the remaining corruption, the indwelling sin, may greatly prevail for a time. Yet, if we are truly in Christ, the sinful nature will not have the last word. 
And so we see one of the distinguishing marks between a Christian and a non-Christian is actually this continual battle against sin. Even if our sinful nature greatly prevails for a time, we never completely surrender to our sin. Rather, we must continually be seeking to put it to death. And in this war against sin, as we still struggle with this indwelling sin, the Christian ought to view themselves as a new creature in Christ. They ought to view that sin as being incompatible with who they truly are. So to summarize these points, a simple way again for the kids. A Christian does not continue living in sin because that is not who they are anymore. They used to be a sinner, they used to love their sin, but when they turned to Christ, when they became a Christian, the Bible says they became a new person. Holy Spirit now lives inside them, and they live a godly life instead of a sinful life. When they do sin, which they still will, they confess their sin to God and seek to make things right with those they have sinned against. So Paul's answer to the question he raised in verse 1 is, no, we cannot continue to sin, that grace may abound, because through our conversion we were transformed. When we became Christians, we died to sin. That was the spiritual reality. We have been crucified with Christ. There is no sin left allowed to call the shots within us. That is not our identity anymore. To be a Christian is to be dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's his answer. And he asks this rhetorical question. How can we who died to sin, still live in it? The implied answer is we can't. Paul continues to build his case here in verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And so now we come to our verses on baptism here. Notice Paul is using baptism as part of his argument against antinomianism. Now remember the view that we can sin all that we want because of God's grace. So as he argues against this position, he gives us some very significant insights into what baptism is and how it ought to function. So notice firstly from the text. Christian baptism is a baptism into the death of Christ. Paul asks the question, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized, that all who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? says this is the reality. And first off, we need to note the assumption that Paul makes here. Paul is writing to the church in Rome, and here is arguing against antinomianism. And notice that Paul here simply assumes that all the people to whom he is writing have been baptized. If it were the regular practice of churches 
to have uh, to be full of unbaptized Christians, his argument loses a lot of its strength. But he writes to the church and draws application from the fact that the people he is addressing have been baptized. And so we see from Scripture that this is simply a matter of Christian obedience. If you are a Christian, if you are a believer, the Bible simply assumes that you will have been baptized. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So firstly, baptism in this text is being joined to Christ and united with him in his death. It is a sign and a seal or confirmation of the reality that has already occurred inwardly. That is, you know, in our union with Christ through faith, our sinful nature has been crucified and buried with Christ. And so that internal reality is now being put on display through baptism. Put that in simpler terms, baptism gives us a visible picture of what God has done and is doing inside of us. We see as well, baptism is an identification with Christ's death and resurrection, the outward display of an inward reality. Every Christian, if you are truly a Christian, has been united to Christ by faith. Through our union with Christ, his death becomes our death. We are counted as having died and paid the penalty that was due to us for our sin. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, all true believers are raised to spiritual life by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Bible, we see many places, describes conversion as a coming to life from the dead. Ephesians 2, though we are by nature dead in transgression and sin, God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So if you are a true Christian, this is true of you. This has happened to you. Your decision to trust in Christ was something that you did because God had already been at work in your heart. God removed your heart of stone, granted you a heart of flesh. You were dead in your transgressions and sins, and Scripture says God made you alive. And so this is what is pictured in baptism. It is a powerful image of death and resurrection. I think this gives us the answer to our next question. Who should get baptized? Well, the answer, Christians. The people who should receive this sign are the people who have experienced the reality that the sign is pointing to. 
So if baptism is a sign of dying and rising with Christ, we should give that sign to the people who have died to sin and been raised with Christ. And so one of the things that this means is that we will not give the ordinances to non-Christians. We see in Scripture uh, the Lord's Supper is described as participation in Christ's body and blood. People who are living in rebellion to Christ, people who hate Christ, are not participants of his body and blood, and should therefore not receive the sign that says that they are. In the same way, we do not baptize unbelievers because baptism is a sign of being united to Christ in his death and resurrection. And so as far as we are able, we do not give the sign to those that have not been united to Christ. Now this raises an interesting question, uh, particularly as it uh, relates to our Paedo-Baptist uh, brethren. Um, so turn with me to Colossians chapter 2, verse 11. <clears throat> Colossians 2, verse 11 and 12. It says, In him, in Christ, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised uh, with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Now, interestingly, I may not be able to tell at first glance why, uh, but this is one of the go-to passages used by our infant Baptist or paedo-Baptist brothers. They argue that there is a connection made in this text between circumcision and baptism, and that since the covenant sign of circumcision was given to children under the Abrahamic covenant, therefore the covenant sign of baptism should be given to the children of believers in the new covenant. Now just to be very, very clear, this is not our position. Um, and so we ask, is this truly what Paul was meaning to communicate in this passage? Well, let's look to the text. What does Paul actually say regarding circumcision? What does he actually say about the church? What does he actually say about baptism? Well, Paul says, firstly, that in Christ, the Colossians were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now, we know that circumcision in the Old Covenant was always made with hands. Uh, it was a physical act done in the body. Uh, and it was, in fact, done to all of the uh, descendants of Abraham uh, as infants. What we need to understand is one of the major differences between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant is that the Old Covenant was a mixed covenant, while the new covenant is not. Now what does that mean, a mixed covenant? Well, this means that there were many people who appropriately received the sign of circumcision and who were true members in good standing within the Abrahamic and Mosaic covenants, but who nonetheless were never truly saved. Right? They were never truly regenerate. Right? They could keep the law externally, right? they could pay lip service to God, 
Uh, they could avoid murdering people and committing adultery and all that. Uh, they could observe the rituals and the ordinances, bringing the sacrifices at the appointed times. Nonetheless, they did not love God with their hearts. And so their law-keeping was merely external. As God says to them, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And so one of the continual refrains that we hear from the prophets is for the people of Israel not only to have their flesh circumcised, their bodies circumcised, but also for them to circumcise their hearts. And this is actually one of the promises of the New Covenant recorded for us in Jeremiah 31. You can turn with me there, Jeremiah 31, beginning in verse 31. Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I shall write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So notice here, the new covenant will not be like the old one. There will be some key differences between them. In verse 33, we see one of these differences. Notice God says this, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. Right? Rather than simply having God's law inscribed on tablets of stone, in the new covenant, God says, the law is going to go onto the heart of every new covenant member. So unlike the old covenant, which was a mixed covenant of some people who were regenerate and others who were not, here, all true members of the new covenant will know the Lord. So this is one of the key points at which we differ uh, from the covenant theology of our Pado-Baptist brethren. We would hold that they have failed to properly understand the newness of the new covenant. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So unlike the old covenant, all true members of the new covenant know the Lord. Unlike the Old Covenant, all true members of the New Covenant have the law written on their hearts. Unlike the Old Covenant, all true members of the New Covenant have their iniquities forgiven. God does not remember their sins. And so the book of Hebrews can say that the New Covenant is superior to the Old since it is enacted on better promises. And he quotes this exact passage, Jeremiah 31. 
So one of the promises is of the new covenant, of the coming new covenant, was that all new covenant members would have their hearts circumcised, not merely their bodies. And so this is what Paul picks up on in Colossians. Paul says, in Christ, the Colossian church had been circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. That is, it was not the work of any human rabbi with a knife. Uh, it was not physical. It was a spiritual circumcision. A circumcision of the heart. So drawing from the imagery of circumcision, uh, Paul uh, describes, or Paul says that what is now put off or cut off is the body of the flesh. It is our sinful nature that is cut off and cast away. I think the NLT translators actually capture this one quite well. Uh, they render verse 11 this way. When you came to Christ, you were circumcised, but not by a physical procedure. Christ performed a spiritual circumcision, the cutting away of your sinful nature. And so Paul is talking here about regeneration, uh, the work of Christ within us to renew us, to quicken us, to grant us spiritual life. And so I think if you were to ask Paul what the new covenant corollary to circumcision was, I think based on his argument in this text, he would say that the fulfillment of the circumcision of the flesh is the circumcision of the heart. Regeneration. You become a covenant member through your union with Christ, which happens at conversion, when your heart is circumcised. And so in this text, the circumcision of Christ is the work of the Spirit in us to remove our hearts of stone and to grant us now hearts that work, hearts that beat with affection for God. No longer stony, hard, and cold, but warm, soft, and receptive to God and to His Word. Hearts that have God's law inscribed on them, as Jeremiah 31 had prophesied. And notice as well in Paul's argument that all of the Colossians had experienced this reality. Right? The church was made up of people whose hearts had been circumcised. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Now again, that doesn't work if the new covenant is a mixed covenant as the old covenant was. This was a reality for each one of them. In him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made with our hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, same language as Romans 6, in which you were also raised with him through faith, in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. So he says here, the Colossians, as well as having their hearts circumcised, were buried with Christ in their baptism. This was a reality they had all experienced. And notice as well what this and Romans 6 both tell us about the mode of baptism. The fact is there is only one mode of baptism which properly pictures dying with Christ, being buried with him, and being raised to new life. 
And what's fascinating is that even some of the greatest proponents of infant baptism recognize that this was the true symbolism of baptism in the New Testament. So here is the paid Baptist, Martin Luther. He writes this. For even in the German tongue, taufe un comes undoubtedly from the word tief, deep, and means that what is baptized is sunk deeply into water. This usage is also demanded by the significance of baptism itself. For baptism, as we shall hear, signifies that the old man and the sinful birth of flesh and blood are to be wholly drowned by the grace of God. We should therefore do justice to its meaning and make baptism a true and complete sign of the thing it signifies." Close quote. Now that is fascinating coming from a Beta Baptist. Luther argued that immersion was the mode that makes baptism a true and complete sign of the thing it signifies. And in this, he was exactly right. We are buried under the water, baptized, immersed into the death of Christ. And just as Christ was raised from the dead, we too, we don't leave the people under the water, uh, but we are raised up out of the water, raised to walk in new life. So you notice, uh, sprinkling doesn't capture this, pouring doesn't capture this, only immersion, as Luther puts it, does justice to the meaning of the word baptism, and is a true and complete sign of being buried with Christ and raised to walk in newness of life. Now, just a quick side point here. Um, while this will be the practice we always will observe, uh, those who have been sprinkled or poured uh, upon confession of faith in other true churches, uh, we will not require you to be re-baptized uh, to join as members, just to put that out of your minds uh, at ease on that one. Um, so yes, baptism itself means uh, to be immersed or, or to dip, to, to plunge under the water. Alright, one more point for us to grasp from this text in Colossians. Uh, notice verse 12. It says, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God. Notice the place of faith in this text. In a passage quite similar to Romans 6, Paul references baptism in passing here, again to discuss the transformation of the Colossians which they experienced through the working of Christ as he circumcised their hearts, uh, brought them to faith in him, which was then as well pictured in their baptism as they were buried with Christ in baptism and raised through faith. Raised through faith. And so understanding what baptism is and what it signifies provides us with clarity regarding the question of who should be baptized. Well, here's our confession. Baptism is an ordinance of the New Testament ordained by Jesus Christ. To those baptized, it is a sign of their fellowship with him in his death and resurrection, of their being grafted into him, of remission of sins, and of submitting themselves to God through Jesus Christ to live and walk in newness of life. So who should be baptized? Those who have experienced the underlying realities that baptism puts on display. In a word, 
Christians. Christians. Now, how can we know if someone is truly a Christian or not? And at this point, we have to admit our own limitations. We have no ability to look into the heart, and so we are left to judge by the only criteria that God has given us. Right? By looking at someone, I can't know if you are regenerate. I can't know if the Holy Spirit has indwelt you. But what I can do is ask if you have turned away from sin and have trusted in Christ alone for salvation. If your answer is yes, then barring any clear evidence to the contrary, since we cannot look into hearts, we must accept the profession of faith. Begin treating that person like a brother or sister in Christ. Right? Unless he gives evidence to the contrary by abandoning Christ or embracing a life of unrepentant sin, we have no reason whatsoever to doubt the sincerity of their profession. If he does abandon his profession of faith in Christ, or does embrace a life of unrepentant sin, we should still not conclude that we did something wrong by baptizing them, that person. Rather, we should follow the process that God has given for maintaining the purity of the church. And that is not the withholding of baptism, but that is church discipline. And so this all brings us to the question, what about our children? Right? We rightly want to preserve the purity of the church. We do not want to have a mixed congregation, a thoroughly mixed congregation of saved and unsaved as in the Old Covenant. And so we do rightly seek to make the visible New Covenant community reflect the reality of New Covenant membership. And so while this desire to preserve a regenerate membership is important, it's also possible for us to go too far in this and to end up refusing true Christians who are truly united to Christ and are true members of the covenant. We can end up refusing them uh, to turn them aside from receiving the blessings, the means of grace, the covenant signs, simply because of their age. And so our practice as a church is not to set a particular age which someone must reach before we will baptize them, but rather we will meet with their parents and with them, seek to discern if they understand the gospel, if they have trusted in Christ alone for salvation, and if their life would show anything contradictory to that profession. Now the fact is their faith may very well be childlike and immature, and they will continue sinning. Uh, but this part is true of people at any age. Right? Nobody upon conversion attains sinlessness. And the fact that it is true that a 10-year-old sins look different than a 20-year-old sins is not evidence that the 10-year-old is not truly converted. And all of this is precisely why discipleship is such an important part of the task of the church. When somebody comes to faith in Christ at any age, they will enter the faith, enter the church, with an immature faith. And usually with a very limited understanding, and so it is the job of the church then to disciple this person. As they join the body of Christ, the church collectively receives them as a member and commits to building them up until they 
reach maturity in Christ. Specifically with our younger brothers and sisters in the faith. It is their parents and especially their fathers that are to take the leading role in their discipleship. Now last week we preached on membership. And so now I want to address another question and that is, what is the connection between baptism and church membership? You can turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12. First Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So notice what this text says here. Those who are baptized are baptized into the body of Christ. Now the body of Christ refers firstly to the universal church, and so from this text we derive the principle that baptism is, in an important sense, the entrance rite. It is the ritual that marks off your being joined to the body of Christ, baptized into the body. Uh, this is part of where we get this idea that baptism is a public identification of somebody as a Christian. That's interesting. I've heard uh, stories from missionaries in Muslim countries, and uh, often this is the sticking point. Uh, it's always difficult for those who come to faith in Christ uh, that have a, a Muslim background. It's often very difficult with their families. Uh, but specifically the thing that is, is really frowned upon is baptism. Right? Some of these families don't care quite so much if you claim that you're a Christian, but as long as you don't go and get baptized. For they recognize that this is the public sign that you have now identified yourself with Christ Jesus, and that you are a Christian. So it's amazing to hear of stories of our brothers and sisters risking their lives uh, for the sake of this step of obedience to Christ. Now, throughout the book of Acts, uh, we see it again and again as people are converted, as the Holy Spirit falls on them, as they respond in faith to the preaching of the gospel, the very first thing that the church does is to baptize them, to publicly identify these people as having been joined to the body of Christ. They are baptized into the body. And as we saw last week, all Christians... All members of the universal church are then to be joined to particular local bodies where they will be able to serve, worship, be involved, engaged, and accountable members of those bodies. And the fact is, again, you cannot fulfill what God requires of you apart from some commitment to a particular local body. And so baptism is a being joined to the body of Christ. And all those who are joined to the body of Christ must have particular local churches they are committed to. And so for these reasons, we will combine baptism with church membership. Right? As you are baptized into the body of Christ, we welcome you into this body of local believers. 
Now we'll expand more on this when we come to our sermon on the Lord's Supper, but to put it very simply, there is a beautiful harmony when it comes to the ordinances of the church. Right, so we've been looking this morning and seeing that baptism is your entrance, right? It pictures your conversion, right? Dying with Christ, rising with him. Uh, scripture calls it a baptism into the body of Christ. As you are entering now the body of Christ, you belong to Christ's church. Uh, and so if baptism is the entrance, right? The Lord's Supper is the ongoing affirmation that you are continuing to walk as a believer. Right? It is the sign of participation in the body and blood of Christ. It is the church affirming that you are indeed a true partaker in the body and blood of Christ. And so excommunication through church discipline can then be seen as the opposite of baptism. And this of course happens when somebody either renounces their faith in Christ or begins to live a lifestyle of unrepentant sin that undermines their profession of faith. Right? The church can no longer affirm this person as a Christian, and so after following the steps laid out by the Lord, they are removed from membership and therefore from the Lord's table. So to give it for shorthand, you can think of it like this. A baptism is the front door. Baptism is the entrance. The Lord's Supper is the ongoing affirmation. Church discipline is the exit, or the back door, so to speak. So to wrap up this morning, if you have been engrafted into Christ, if your sins have been remitted, if you have undergone the circumcision without hands, if you have died to sin and been raised spiritually to new life in Christ, now all of that to say, if you are a Christian, if you have responded in simple faith to the gospel and are now committed to walking with your Lord, then obey the command of Christ. Get baptized. Be baptized into the body of Christ. Join yourself to a faithful, particular, local body. We invite you to join us as we seek to follow Christ together. We saw last week God's good designs that we would not live the Christian life alone, but would live it out in community with our brothers and sisters in Christ. If you are here today and you do not know Christ, but you feel the Spirit tugging at your heartstrings, then I invite you, turn from your sin, confess it to God, trust in the finished work of Christ, who lived a perfect life, died on the cross to take the penalty for sin, and now offers forgiveness to all those who repent and believe. Do this, and obey Christ's command, and be baptized. And finally, to those who are baptized, to my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, continue walking in light of who you are in Christ. I'll leave you with Paul's words in Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin, that grace may abound, by no means. How can we who have died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him, by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. 
May we walk faithfully in the new life we have in Christ. Amen.